I think the impression most people have about Jesus who haven't met him, who haven't read about him, is that they would like him. He said and did good things, and he wants us to do the same. What's not to like? He sounds like a really good guy, and we like really good guys. And this is the kind of sense that I think most people have about Jesus. Everyone smiles when he's around. He smiles, they smile, everyone smiles. We'd like him, he'd like us. Lovely. And there's no one like Jesus. There's no one as wonderful as Jesus. There's no one as lovely as Jesus. There's no one as beautiful and as brilliant as Jesus. But when you read the actual eyewitness accounts of his life, what he really said, what he really did, you will find Jesus repeatedly saying things that most of us don't like. Tonight, we'll be focusing on how often he tells us that he is right and we are wrong. And with Jesus, that's kind of the end of it. See, we're going to finish tonight. We're going to have a discussion time. And you'll be able to talk around your tables and share your opinion. And as you share your opinion, people will say, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, I don't know. Mm, Yeah. Because a lot of us here are British. (laughs) And a lot of us here aren't sure if we've quite got it what's right and what's wrong. But Jesus says of himself, I am the way. I am the truth. And I'm the life. And that's it. He didn't really give opinions, but statements of fact. More than that, actually, descriptions of reality. That's what he was about when he was talking and when he was acting. He said that to reject his teaching was like building your house on shifting sands. It was foolish and dangerous. But to accept what he said was like building your house on a rock the only firm foundation that there is. And he said that at the end of time, he is going to judge every person for how they've lived according to his definitions of right and wrong. Our culture does not think that that is good. Our culture doesn't think that's a good thing to say at all. For the past few decades now, we have accepted the view, generally, certainly in the West, that something can be true for you, but not necessarily for me. And that's the polite line uh, that you will have encountered maybe in conversations with people who have different opinions to you on all sorts of things, including what's right and what's wrong. And coming to this conclusion was partly uh, a very understandable reaction against how truth claims, uh, people who say they know what's right and know what's wrong, how those truth claims are often used by people abusively. They will say, this is the truth, and because you're not in line with it, I'm going to marginalise you, I'm going to mock you, I may even murder you. So what happened in Nazi Germany, so what happened in Soviet Russia, it's happening in North Korea right now, it's happening with Islamic extremism right now, and there have been episodes of this in church history as well. And so... That's one of the reasons why people now like to think, well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. This is what's true for me, and that works for me. And I think this view that you can define your own truth is popular because it puts you at the center of the world, and it puts you in control of your life. And this true for you, but not true for me way of thinking is still really powerfully present in some areas of life. 
So when people are encouraged to define themselves, people are like, oh yeah, it's true for you, great, whatever you want to say, that's how it is. And for me, whatever I want to say, that's how it is. And people love that. However, there is a logical inconsistency to this position, and it's been commonly, it's been long seen by some, and it's now started to be acknowledged more commonly, because when people start to really think this through, they think, that doesn't really make any sense at all. You can't say, I can jump out of an aeroplane at 30,000 feet without a parachute, and I'll be fine, because that's what I think to be the reality. And it be true. There are things that you often will have experienced that you think, I wish this was true, but the reality of it is confronting you, and you can't change that. And so this is an interesting cultural moment for us where we've come from a while of thinking, well, anything's true if you'd like it to be, to suddenly realize, well, no, it's not really. There is an instinct within us that there is a truth which exists. There is right and wrong. And that seems to, again, now be gaining some force, although, as usual, because humans are involved, uh, we're making a fair amount of mess of it. And if you want to see that uh, in any form, really, just go on social media and you'll see people who are clear on what's right and wrong and how they're dealing with others who disagree with them. Because no one likes being told they're wrong, do they? No one came here this evening and thought, what would, I mean, there'll be a lot of good things this evening. I hope I'll have a nice cup of coffee. I hope the worship's inspiring. really hope to get to chat with some people. But what I really hope for, what I'm really, I guess my expectation, my desire, is to be told that I am wrong. None of you came here with that expectation tonight. None of you came here with that desire. And even the fact that I'm joking about it here, you're like, no, 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 that's not funny, because I think that's what you're doing tonight. <laughs> no one likes being told they're wrong, really, about anything, especially not if it's the most important things in life, if it's the things that you are building your entire life, your whole way of seeing the world on. But Jesus frequently told his enemies, his followers, his closest friends that they were wrong when they disagreed with him. Some of them loved him for this. Others of them ignored him for it. And some of them killed him for it. How will you respond to him doing this to you? It probably depends on what you think the consequences of his intervention will be. Whether you think he's stopping you from drinking something poisonous or something delicious. Whether you think he is trying to tie you down or set you free. And every Christian wrestles with it. There's challenges for all of us in Jesus' teaching And each one of us will have different things that he says that are like, oh, that is difficult for me. And it's a struggle. And so we're faced with a moment then when we say, will we accept what he says is true, to be true, whatever the consequences for our present happiness? And whether you're a Christian or not here today, you need to respond to this confrontation that Jesus is making to you because he's making it to you. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at a scene from Jesus' life where different people were trying to discredit him to prove that he was wrong and that they were right. And as we do so, I want you to consider which side are you on? Because there were spectators at these arguments, but no one could remain neutral. 
We're going to read uh, from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's account of Jesus' life. We're going to read from chapter 22. And just to set the scene a little bit, um, the, uh, the debate that we're going to see happened in the temple precinct. The temple's in the background there, the big white building. And then you can see the courts uh, all around it. And that's where uh, people went to gather uh, for all sorts of reasons. One thing they would do is people would teach there and people would dispute there. So that's where it happens. When it happens is on the Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life on earth, the final week before he died. This happens on the Tuesday. On Thursday night, his enemies arrest him, and on Friday morning, they have him crucified. So this is a tense time. And so people are picking fights with Jesus. Verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the word of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is faced with three challenges in what we've just read. The first one is this, are you for real? Can we trick you? Can we find you out to be less than you think you are? The Jews of Jesus' day believed that they were God's chosen people. They belonged to God alone. Unfortunately for them, they were also under the control of the Roman Empire at this time. And so Caesar had a very powerful claim over them and an army to back him up. And so he could demand taxes from them. 
Now, no one's a fan of taxes, really, in most contexts, let alone when those taxes come from a conquering power. And it's even worse when you're a believer in the one true God and Caesar claims to be a God and makes you pay taxes with coins that say on them, Caesar is God. So the Jews hated paying taxes to Caesar. So it's a very, um, it's a very uh, a political issue that everyone had an opinion on. And Matthew tells us that two groups of Jews tried to use this uh, uh, situation to trap Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were, they were like the moral police force of their day. Uh, Their authority was the esteem that they were held in by other people for how holy and how well behaved they seemed to be. They were very good at letting people know that they were trying to obey God and trying to do everything. And it's often the case, if you're not like that, but you see someone doing it, you give them a lot of credit. And so the Pharisees were a very powerful group in Judaism. They were confident that they were doing what God wanted. And so they objected whenever Jesus said to them, you're wrong. He showed them a different way. They didn't like it. They were relying on themselves. And you don't have to be religious to do that. Whereas Jesus told them to rely on him. Also with them were the Herodians. They were a more pragmatic crowd who were associated with the dynasty of King Herod. And uh, his family had been uh, given ruling powers by Rome over uh, this region. And so it was in their interests to keep Caesar in charge. And it was in their interest not to have anyone else claim to have authority. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And if there's a rival king and you belong to the first king, that makes you nervous about your status, about how your life might not be built on a solid foundation. And so they didn't like Jesus either. And so they knew that if they asked Jesus a question about paying taxes to Caesar, they were setting a very clever trap. Because, of course, no one could make themselves popular by saying that Rome's rule and taxation was a great thing. No one could really do that anyway. They certainly couldn't do it in Jerusalem. Isn't it great that the Romans rule over us? Isn't it great that they demand taxes? Isn't it great that they make blasphemous claims about being God? No one could say that. But of course, anyone who said, let's get rid of Rome, let's not pay taxes, had to face the fact that there was a Roman army waiting to kill anyone who said such a thing right next door. And so this is the choice the question tries to trap Jesus with. Lose your credibility or lose your life. And they try to flatter Jesus when they start. They say, we know you teach the truth. We know that you don't care what anyone else says. Jesus sees straight through them. He says, you're hypocrites. You wear a mask that hides your true intentions, but I can see straight through you and what you're saying. But he's still trapped in this question, isn't he? Surely he's going to give some kind of politician's answer. And wander on for a while and eventually, hopefully, everyone's forgotten the question and then he'll make another point. He doesn't do that. He, with just the genius of his truthfulness, puts Caesar in his place. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Caesar wants coins? Well, give him coins. I mean, he's got an empire to administrate. After all, he can't do it without your cash. So give him it. But God has no need of you and yet wants everything from you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
Psalm 24 says. And so when Jesus says to them, give to God what is God's, he's saying to them, have you given your whole life to God? Is God getting all of you as he should? Because you're testing me on right living and I'm telling you this is what it looks like. And in doing this, Jesus also shows that there aren't just right and wrong answers. There are also right and wrong ways to ask questions. These people were asking him a question. It wasn't a genuine inquiry. They weren't confused and they wanted his help. They wanted to find him out, to trip him up, to get back the authority he'd taken from them. So when you're asking questions about Jesus, when you're not sure, or when you're, uh, someone's talking to you about his claims, when you're reading about him maybe, or hearing people talk about him, what are the questions you ask? And why do you ask them? Are you trying to catch him out? Or are you trying to follow him? That's the first challenge. The second challenge is, what is real? A different group come up to Jesus, the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a very political, power, uh, politically powerful group, and they were far too sophisticated to believe in all that supernatural, superstitious stuff that the other Jews believed in. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as being from God, and they didn't think that there was anything beyond this life. This life was it, as far as they were concerned. And so they were picking and choosing what to believe according to their own preference. And again, That's not something unique to them. And they wanted to show Jesus how ridiculous his beliefs were. The question they asked is basically saying, you you cannot seriously think this. Can you? And so they took an Old Testament law about preserving a family's possession of land through inheritance and turn it into a joke about heaven not existing. These are some of the most powerful people in the land. And they're laughing in Jesus' face. And so how's he going to respond? Well, he didn't flinch when he was faced with the political trap. And he didn't compromise when he was faced with the approval of powerful men. He says, you're wrong. I don't imagine they were expecting him to say that. I think they were expecting him to say, "Mm, yeah, that's kind of awkward, isn't it? Oh, well, because that's the kind of thing that we would do, isn't it? When everyone around us says, you can't possibly believe this, can you? Jesus says to them, you're wrong. You haven't read God's word humbly as you should. You don't know God's mighty power as you would if only you trusted in him rather than yourselves. The implication from Jesus is that there is a new age coming. There is a life beyond this one. And when it arrives, you're going to want to be eagerly anticipating it like my followers rather than laughing at the idea of it. Again, there's no acceptance of an alternative opinion going on here, is there? There's no, oh, that's an interesting perspective. I guess we can have more than one. He's just not doing it. There are lots of powerful people who say that Jesus is wrong, who say that Christianity is ridiculous. It's easy to laugh with them or be intimidated by them. But look how confidently Jesus replies to them. And this just stirs this question in us, doesn't it? Who's right? Third challenge, what matters most? Matthew says that the third challenge came from an expert in the Old Testament law who wanted to test Jesus. What kind of testing is this? We're used to people by now, we've had two arguments in which people are trying to trick Jesus, trying to find him out. But that's not what happens with this third guy. 
See, in Mark's account of the same story, we're told that the lawyer had been hearing Jesus give good answers and that he agreed with what Jesus says. And so his testing is more about proving that Jesus is the real deal than trying to show that he's false. Because he's coming with this attitude, Jesus answers him differently to the previous two challenges. There's no rebuke of this guy. There's no, hey, well, if you're so smart, why haven't you worked this out for yourself? Or anything like that. Instead, Jesus gives him not only the right answer, but an invitation. These are the greatest commandments, Jesus says. These are what matter most in all of life. That's what a commandment meant to the Jews. What is life about? He says, primarily, firstly, above all, in all, to the exclusion of anything compromising it, we're to love God with everything we have, to happily give him everything, our whole lives, our emotions, our intellect, our efforts, everything. And from that, he says, the second's like it, the, second's flow, the second flows from it, to love everyone around us as ourselves. Jesus knows that this is the right answer. He knows that it's the, the, the correct answer to the question of what matters most, not just because he's read his Bible a lot, not just because he knows God better than anyone else, but because this is how he lived. This is who he is. And this is why he is different from everyone else who has ever claimed to know the difference between right and wrong. See, I've kept the picture on the screen of where this scene takes place. It's the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was where people went to pay the price of an animal's life for their wrongdoings. They had to do this because God had told them that their wrongdoings weren't just a matter of opinion, but were instead a matter of life or death. To be in disagreement with God is a fatal error because he is the giver of life. He is the one to whom you owe all things. And to go against him is to go against the source and sustainer of life. But he's also the one who gives us a way to be reconciled to him through the death of an innocent on our behalf. God says, to go against me is to bring death on yourself. But he made a way, and the temple system was all about this, about something else's death, Going in your place, a lamb or a bird or a bull. That's what was happening in that temple. That's where people were going to try and make themselves right with God. But God also said that those animals were only ever a signpost of what was to come. Do you see the hill in the foreground of the picture? It's within view of the temple. And it's where we think Golgotha was. And that's the place where Jesus allowed himself to be crucified, where he chose to take God's punishment for all of our wrongs. It's where he did what was right for us who are wrong. He had obeyed God perfectly. He had resisted evil totally. He laid down his life sacrificially and he took it up three days later victoriously. And this is the proof 
that ends all the other arguments that he is right. Because no one else ever did this. No one ever said, I'll prove to you that I'm right by dying and then being raised to life three days later. Some other people may have said something along those lines, but no one else ever did it. He did it. And that's why it matters. That's why what he says matters, because he's not just claiming an opinion. He's saying, this is the truth, and I'm going to prove it to you in such a way that you're left without argument. Jesus alone can define right and wrong. But look at how he treats those who are wrong. History in the news shows us that everyone else who ever claims they're right and others are wrong always assert their claim in a way that's bad for their opponents. They mock, they marginalise, they murder those who say they are wrong or who they say are wrong. That's what people always do. Except Jesus. He died for those who were wrong. He gave them life and made them right. I started by saying that people who uh, don't know Jesus often mistake him for someone they would agree with. But we've seen tonight that he challenges all of us by showing that he alone is the source and judge of right and wrong. And this leaves us with a choice. We can be offended by this We can try and catch him out, try and find inconsistencies uh, or just ridicule it and say, that's just nonsense, can't believe you think that way, it can't possibly be the case and then walk out with our lives unchanged. Or we can humbly acknowledge that he is right and we are wrong. And when we do this, he will deal with our wrongness for us. And then we can discover that he was also right when he said that he came to give us life in all its fullness. Because when we talk about right and wrong, we usually think, what aren't I allowed to do? Jesus says, well, you're wrong about that too. It's all about what you get to do when you come into a life of following him. I also said that we're living in a time in which people are starting to remember that there is a right and a wrong. And deep in all of us, there is a knowledge that this is the case. This is the case, even if we haven't quite got it clear in ourselves what exactly that right and those wrongs are. Will you trust that Jesus is right? If you're a Christian, have you been attempting to negotiate your own ideas of right and wrong with Jesus? Have you been saying, I know it says that there, but I'm sure there must be a way out of it, and I'd prefer the way out of it. You need to stop doing that. You need to repent of it, which is a Bible word, which means stop and turn around and head in the opposite direction. You need to start trusting him and following him wherever he leads you. Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, Christianity isn't difficult, or it's not hard to understand. It's just that we don't want to do what it asks us to do. But if Jesus is right, then we must follow him. And we must obey him. Maybe also you need to recover your confidence in him as you speak about him with others. You won't be as smart as he is in this scene. Everyone wants to be like that. You're like, Matt, he just has an answer to everything. Well, he does because he is the answer to everything. 
You don't have to be that. But you can endeavor to be faithful to God and loving to those who are around you, even if they're laughing at you or upset with you. Jesus actually calls us as we follow him to do that. 